Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Well, I love their, your uh, take on, on light and darkness. In some ways, it's almost intuitive that we kind of get some of that, and yet the contrast between light and dark can be startling. Yet the images of light and dark run all the way through the Bible, with, with beginning in chapter 1, verse 2, when God creates, first creates the heavens and the earth, the next thing he does, he says in verse 3, let there be light, and there was light. And this is the cool part, God, and God said that the light was good. The light was good. And again, maybe we know that intuitively. God gives us pictures and images all through the Bible. Light speaks of God's goodness and purity, that there's, there's no place in it for evil to hide. It, light reveals, and, and throughout Scripture and life, light reveals to us God and his truth. Light illuminates you know, helps us to see our path. Yes, physically, and then the light of God to spiritually see our paths, our way. And light reveals the truth. Whatever has been hiding in the dark, whatever you're not sure of, whatever has been kind of away or working on the fringes of your life when we shine light on it, even things that, that we didn't know were there or we didn't want to see, life, light reveals so this morning we're going to look in 1 John. We started this series last week, and we're going to look in 1 John. It's um, near the end of the New Testament of your Bible. There's a 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. We're, we're just doing 1 John. So if you have your Bible, open that. If you don't, we have sermon notes that are in your bulletin that you can pull out to use and, and follow along as well in that. Um, so to, today we're going to be looking at 1 John verses 5 into second, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And, and so looking just at that first verse, which really ties back to what you've already heard, uh, it says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And, and if you were with us last week, you know, but if you weren't, just a reminder, John is challenging some in his churches who've begun to promote these teachings that question who Jesus is and, and what he did and, and his authority for the living of our lives. And, and the, these ways of thinking about Jesus Christ, what uh, is called Christology, uh, it's thinking about Jesus, it's reflecting on who he is and what he has done, are not just about then the theological stuff or the, the, the thinking stuff because our Christology, our thinking about Christ, if we are truly believing it, has to lead then to how we live our lives. And what was going on is their Christology, their thinking about Christ, was leading to moral lifestyle issues that did not reflect what Christ taught nor the character of God. A lot of these folks claimed that they were really spiritual, that they were really connected to God, and that they were so far advanced spiritually that how they lived their lives really didn't matter. But John wanted them to understand that God's light would show otherwise, that you can't divorce 
who God is from how we live our lives and make sense of it. So John sets out to address some of their claims. Um, and, and what again, this is a writing, and we have to always kind of look at it as we're seeing one side of a conversation. There was clearly some other things going on. And what it appears is that there were at least three claims being made by some of these folks in the churches he's addressing that are found specifically in verses 6, 8, and 10. And there's kind of a formula that John is using here where he, in each case, at the beginning of the verse, he's going to say, if we say, da-da-da, and whatever he's repeating there, if we say whatever that is, it, most likely he is repeating something that these folks in these churches who are questioning about Jesus, things that they are claiming about their own spiritual lives. They claim they have a close relationship with God, that their, that their lives aren't stained by sin, and they've, in fact, done no wrong. And what we'll see here is not simply about some things that these folks are doing wrong, but in fact, that their wrong attitudes and beliefs are affecting everything they do, just as it affects us. In fact, he's saying their misunderstandings at best or delusions at worst are pushing them out of the light and back into darkness. They claim to be Christians. But you get the sense that they're kind of leading these double lives because they, they believed life was all about the spiritual and what they did with their bodies, in fact, didn't matter. They, they had this dualistic view of life coming from the Greeks, from the Hellenistic way of thinking, that life, bodies, mass, uh, matter, those things were inherently evil and only the spirit mattered. And so they could rationalize that their behavior, their lifestyle in their bodies didn't matter as long as they thought spiritual thoughts. But here's the thing. We can't divide our being up into physical and spiritual parts or physical, spiritual, emotional parts. It's just like we can't divide up our life into my work life, my home life, my church life and, and argue that, well, you know, what I do at home or what I do at work doesn't affect my relationships. Man, there are a lot of people around you who would strongly disagree because they know when stuff, they can tell when something's not going right in your home life because it's affecting your life in your work life. And the same thing is true in our spiritual lives. We are a unity, a whole. And I, I can't say it's okay for me to look at pornography. It's okay for me to cheat on my taxes. It's okay for me to do these things that are physically oriented, and, and, and it doesn't affect my relationship with God or anyone else at all. Scripture tells us these things are interconnected, which is where the whole idea of integrity comes from, that we are the same everywhere. I think it was Bill Hybels who said integrity is, you know, when, when you you are the same in the dark when you're away from anybody else's view as you are in the light when everybody can see what you're doing. Are you living the same life? Because if you're not, you're setting up a tension inside of you, a battle inside of you of trying to live a lie in at least one front. And what I have discovered is none of us remember well enough what we said and how we did to be able to keep that up for very long, at least well. 
And some of the folks John is writing just, they don't see this. He goes on in verse 6 and 7. He says, if we say, now there's that formula saying, if we say, we have fellowship with him. So this is probably what some of the folks in his church were saying. We have fellowship with, with God. If we say we have fellowship with God, with him, while we walk in darkness, John says, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of, his, of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He uses this image of walking that, that shows that, that life isn't just about what we believe, that it always manifests itself in how we live and how we walk through life. These folks were claiming fellowship with God spiritually. Yeah, I made a commitment to Christ. Yes, I believe him and I trust him, but their lifestyle said that they were still walking in the dark. It said all this other stuff doesn't matter. And John says this kind of spiritual life is a lie. And I mean, that's not, he's not being mamby-pamby about this. He's not, he's not trying to sugarcoat this. In fact, the Greek here literally says, instead of saying do, we lie and do not practice the truth, it says literally do not do the truth. Do not do the truth. And truth is important to John. 45 of the 109 times that the word truth is used in the New Testament are all in John's writings. And yet John's writings only make up about 15% of the whole New Testament. Truth for John is reality. It's not some esoteric stuff up here. It is grounded or based in, on the reality of who God is, especially as he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, and that that then demonstrates or shows itself in how you and I live our lives. Truth, you know, if you claim this is truth and your life doesn't live it, that's not truth. That's a lie is what John is saying. Truth is, isn't what we say it is. It's grounded in who God is. And, and therefore, what he says about life, what he says about existence, what he says about us, which is why the Bible, God's word, is so important to Christ's followers today. But if we do do the truth, if we, as he says, walk in the light as God is in the light, then our lifestyles reflect God in all the areas of our lives, in our work lives, in our home lives, our family lives, our, our play lives. And that's integrity. And John says we see this effect especially in two areas, specifically fellowship with one another and forgiveness of sins. He says there is a, there is this, there's this basic connection between our relationship with each other, the horizontal, and our relationship with God. I, I mean, how often does what, what the Scripture says goes back to the great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. The, the, the relationship with God, the relationship with each other are always interconnected. John says walking in the light leads to fellowship with each other. And this was a big issue in his churches where there were some in his churches who were starting to see themselves as spiritually elite, who, who felt like they were closer to God, they were more special than others. They started looking down on others in their church who maybe were new believers or exploring or weren't, weren't growing as fast as them. And that spiritual pride, and that's what it is, then and today, was rupturing the sense of community, 
the sense of fellowship in his churches. Now, in any healthy community, any church, any group within a church, there are differences. We don't all see everything exactly the same, and, and there will be sin. There will be sinful behavior sometimes. You know, we start to say, well, you know, the, 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 that person sinned. I don't want to have anything more to do with them because they sinned. But that's not what John is saying here. All of us sin. All of us sin. The question is, what do we do with that? When we put Jesus Christ at the center of our faith, he can convict us and remind us of Jesus' death on the cross, which cleanses us from all sin that I'm in no, I'm in no position to, to say how bad you are. You know, the old saying, if you point your finger at someone, you got three fingers coming back at you. That we're in this, in this boat together, and so in a healthy community, yes, there are differences. Yes, people fail one another. Yes, there is sin. But there's also a sense of, of love and, and focus on Jesus Christ as the one who cleanses us. This cleansing that John mentions is, is forgiveness. But it's more than that. It, it, in the original language, it suggests the removal of sin's stain so that the consequences, the spiritual consequences of that sin no longer hang on to us. So humbly forgiving and then releasing the hurt destroys the power of sin to disrupt the community. If I seek forgiveness from God, from those that I've harmed, it takes Satan's power away from disrupting and destroying the community of faith. There's nothing Satan loves to do more than stir up stuff between people. But a community that's filled with, with spiritual pride, where where members aren't willing to seek forgiveness nor give it, where they think they're above that, where they, they think they shouldn't have to. John says they're walking in darkness and their community is going to soon crater, whether it's something as big as a church or as small as a marriage between a man and a woman. Very significant. But he, he's not finished there. He moves on to verse 8 with his second statement, his second kind of formula. Verse 8, if we say... There's that, that, that introductory statement. And now he's going to repeat what some in, in these churches are saying. If we say, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A after John hearing John talk about the need of being cleansed by the blood of Christ in verse 7, he knows that there are going to be some in his churches who, go, who reply back to him, but we don't have sin. In verse 10, he's going to repeat another claim, that they're saying they aren't committing sins. But here John is, in, in this verse, is talking more about the state of sin or the quality of sin when they say we don't have sin. They're saying that somehow that has been completely purified out of them. But John says this claim, we have no sin, is inherently deceptive. The state of sin, of original sin, has existed in all people since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. He's saying that not only, says they are, not only aren't, aren't doing the truth, but in fact the truth doesn't even exist in them. Again, truth is an abstract. God himself is truth and establishes truth. 
And it's, it's very personal. John says in his gospel that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's in a person. Jesus said, whoever does, notice the word does, what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When the truth isn't in them or in us, then God's presence in living in them is lacking. And, and John is warning these, some of these folks, hey guys, you claim to be Christians, but you're saying there is no sin in you? And he's questioning whether or not they ever truly made a commitment to Jesus Christ. He's, he's being very, very forthright here. He says the only recourse to sin and deception is confession. Sin is, is a condition that all of us battle. So he says Christ followers need confession. John says confession works, makes it makes a difference in our lives because of who God is. You know, forgiveness by God, we, we see it as God's mercy, and, and it is. But John is telling us it is more than simply an act of mercy on God's part. John says it flows out of his very nature and character to be faithful and to be just. And here's the thing, when we recognize that our, our confession doesn't drive God away or, or negate the possibility of forgiveness, and some people are afraid of that. They're afraid to confess. They're afraid if God only knew what I was doing, if, 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 if I ever confessed that to him, he would kick me out of the church or he would, he would no longer claim me. But here's the thing, we often overlook. God already knows. We're not surprising God. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. So he's not only there as you sin, he knows what you're thinking as you sin. Sometimes people have likened confession as simply acknowledging what God already knows. But it's like the case with our kids, isn't it? When our kids do something wrong, you know they did it. I mean, you know, if, if some of the, 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 the cake has been eaten and there crumbles all over it and there's smears on their face. You know they did it. And when they sit there and tell you, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't do it. It was my, it was my teddy bear or, you know, something. Don't we as parents, sometimes we feel more disappointment, not that they did it, but that they won't admit that they did it. And God is so interested in us acknowledging the truth that he already knows. And so John says our willingness to be humble and confess leads to both forgiveness and cleansing. To forgive here in, in, the, in the Greek means to let go as in a debt. So John says it's like our sins are removed from God's accounting. Isn't that a great picture? It's like whatever I have done, God opens the book, and when I confess my sin through Jesus Christ, when I, I, he opens the book, it's like he has taken a 
perfect eraser or he's gone onto the computer screen and he's clicked the delete button and it's washed away. To, to purify or cleanse has a slightly different nuance. It suggests that God will also remove the residual effects of sin, the, the sin, the stain in our lives, giving us this hope that increasingly sin doesn't have to control my life. So not only are the, uh, our, our sins of our past erased, but our nature is being changed by God so that increasingly in the future we sin less and less. He changes our hearts. He changes the desires of our hearts. And then John moves on to the third claim, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, talking about God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Once again, he's already he's responding to these folks who are saying now, not only do we not have sin in us, but we haven't sinned. We haven't done anything wrong. And, and looking at specific actions, and the concern here is can anyone really claim that they haven't sinned? John says believing we have not sinned isn't just a personal concern for us, but in fact, it actually impugns the character of God. It's saying, God, you are a liar. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When I say I have not sinned, when I say sin is not a part of me, I'm saying, God, what's in your word is no longer true, at least for me. And that is... John says, is a travesty. If that isn't the case, then everything that God has done from Genesis chapter 3 on to save and redeem his people in biblical times all the way up to this very minute would make no sense. If sin is not real, then we don't need to be saved from it. And what's more, Christianity is false and, in fact, useless. Think about that. If sin is not real, then we might as well close the doors today and stop what we're doing. If you're here, to some degree, some of you, yes, that's exactly what you believe. Some, it may, you may not be sure, but you need to understand what ultimately is at, at stake here is it says there is something inherently wrong that only God can do something about. John also says, and a second result is that his word is not in us. It could be a reference to Scripture, but more likely talking about, again, the living word, Jesus Christ, saying that when we claim to not sin, we're basically saying, I don't need Jesus, I'm not a Christian. And so, if we, so we've seen John lay out these, verse 6, 8, and 10, these three if-we-say statements, answering what some, in, in some, not all, by any stretch, but some in his churches are saying. And we would expect at this point he would come back again now and, and give a little more explanation, something on the positive side. But John suddenly, suddenly here, in, in, as we move to chapter 2, verse 1, he wants to show us his heart. This is not just about doctrinal truth alone, but it, it, it's not about academic arguments, that it is deeply real and personal to John. He writes in verse 1, my little children. 
I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John uses this metaphor of family for the church. It's, it's, been, it's, it's not new to him. It's been going on for decades already. First, the first earliest pastors started calling the members of their church often children. And we get the sense here as we look at John and, 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 and all. John was probably an old dude at this point. I mean, he, had, he was well up in his years. He would be an older gentleman um, who had given his entire adult life to following Jesus Christ and leading others to do the same. He had planted churches. He had worked with them. He had loved on them. He did it not because it was a job, but because it was a calling in his life, because God loved him so much that he could not share that love with others. So it's not just simple obedience. It's not even guilt that is driving him, but love. And that's what he wants to say for a minute, here for a minute. Look, you're, doing, you're saying some things, you're doing some things that aren't good. But you need to hear my heart. My little children. I, I'm, I'm sorry when you do these things because I love you. I care about you. Why do I love and care about you? Because I believe that when you go off on these, these, these wrong teachings, it affects your living. And that living is not healthy for you. It's damaging. It's destructive to your soul, to your spirit, to your body, to all parts of you. So he's, he's saying, look, I know we got some problems here. I know we disagree. But I love you. And I'm not doing this to beat you over the head. I think that's really important, how God wants to always talk to us. Sometimes we have the feeling that when we read through the Bible and it says, do this or don't do that, it's like God just wants to create these rules to keep me from having fun. I've heard many, many people say that. In fact, there was a time in my life I believed that. And John is trying to say, nothing could be further from the truth. I am doing this because I love you so much. I don't want to see you getting off on a tangent on stuff that's going to ultimately crater your life. And I think anybody who takes a leadership role in God's family, whether it's your family in your home, whether it's in a, in a small group or leading a church or whatever, there are times there are, times, there are times when I'm standing up here and I kind of feel like I just want to plead with you. I, want to, I almost feel like I want to beg. Not because I get brownie points somewhere else if I get you to do something extra. But because God created you. You are incredible. He loves you. I, he's working always in my heart to love each one of us around me. And I want for you God's best. I wouldn't be up here. I wouldn't be doing this. There's a whole lot easier ways to earn a living. Trust me. And John, he's saying that to his people. He's been hitting them kind of hard. They've been saying some things that even call into question their faith. But ultimately, his heart is for them. It's not, I caught you, and now we're going to kick you out. 
He wants them to understand that sin is inherent in human life. We can't deny it, but his desire is that it happens less and less. And as we let Christ work in us and transform, transform our hearts, that can happen. And, but at the same time, he wants to avoid giving the impression that, that some will take what he's saying then as a license to sin. To claim, oh, you know, I, I, can't, I just can't help it. I'm a sinner. I can't help it. So what difference does it make? I'm going to sin, so I might as well sin gloriously. Or going a little bit farther and to say, well, if I confess my sin to God, he's, he's got to forgive me, right? Therefore, I can keep doing whatever I want to do because he has to forgive me. Both of those ways of thinking are distortions of where God wants us to be. First, to think I can't help it denies that, that not only did Jesus die on the cross for you, but that he also sent his son to give us the Holy Spirit to live in you to transform you and me so that our hearts are changed, so that we can live differently, increasingly, as we go through life. But at the same time, it's not to say, well, God has to forgive me. That's what it says. He is faithful and just to, for, to, to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what the Bible says. So he's got to forgive me no matter what I do. What if your kid said that to you? Wouldn't you want to just slap him upside the head? Wouldn't you want to say, that is the dumbest thing I ever heard? I mean, we can see these things in others. We have such a hard time seeing it in ourselves. It really does matter. And we can't just play a game with God like you owe it to me. God t told Samuel, I don't look at the appearance. I look at the heart. I look at what's behind it. And that's the danger sometimes people professing their faith in Jesus because someone else did or they think it gets some brownie points. And God's looking at it the whole time and said, you can say the words, but it's your heart that I'm looking at. Was your intention truly to follow me or was your intention to, to fool me or someone else? I mean, he's really... This is kind of in-your-face stuff. And you know what the reality is? I can't judge any single person in this room. But if I look historically at what it means to be a follower of Christ and the behaviors that result out of that and the kinds of beliefs, people who've studied these things tell us that significant percentages of people who attend church, attend church, really aren't Christians. You know, sleeping in a garage doesn't make me a car any more than coming to church makes me a Christian. It's about what I believe and how I live it. And, and John wants to challenge that folks are claiming they've made some kind of decision and they're super spiritual and they're not at all. God wants to forgive. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess, when we are genuinely sorry. But John goes on to tell us then what makes this generosity possible. He shows us two reasons. First, in Jesus Christ, he says we have an advocate with God the Father. Now, advocate is the Greek translation of a word called parakletos in Greek. And it means one who is called alongside as an aide or counselor. 
And it typically was used in, in standard Greek in a legal setting. In John's gospel, he always uses this word to talk about the Holy Spirit. That when Jesus says in John that when I leave you, I will send you a, a counselor, an advocate to be with you, to come alongside you. But here John says this advocate, when, when, when we're talking about on earth, the advocate is the Holy Spirit. But when we're talking about in heaven, the advocate is Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he's sitting there and he says, on our behalf, I believe in John. I believe in Susan. He advocates for us. He represents us before the Father. And, he, and John says Jesus is righteous, that, that through his sinlessness and purity, he's on equal footing with our righteous God to represent us before the Father. He's on our side, pleading our case before God, and God listens because Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, in obedience to the Father, has the right and authority to advocate for us. Jesus is on your side. But there's a second reason, John says, we can trust God to be generous with his grace. The basis for this advocacy, for his advocacy on our part, comes from his sacrifice on the cross. The, the, the key English word here in, in, in the translation I've had up on the screen, it's the English Standard Version, is propitiation. I, I know, that's in all of your vocabularies, right? You use that word every single day. Some of your translations use the phrase atoning sacrifice for a Greek word, hilasmos, which is, is a technical term as it's used in secular Greek. The word was is uncommon in the New Testament, only used a couple of times, but in early Greek translations of the Old Testament, it was always a sacrifice given to placate someone who was angry. And when it was in a religious setting, it was given to placate, placate an angry God due to sin. And the point of the Christian faith is to, is to be in relationship with God, to have that fellowship begin, to have nothing separating us from him in this deep ongoing thing. The problem is that sin breaks that relationship because sin is about a lack of trust. Sin is not just me doing something wrong. Sin is me doing something wrong because I don't believe, God, you know what you're talking about. Sin is doing something wrong because there's something wrong in me that even sees some of these things wrongly. Remember, John was saying it's both a state of sin and an action of sin. We demonstrate this lack of trust of, by going against God's laws. These are acts of sin. Our lack of faith then goes against what God designed and intended and planned for us. And, and that means he has a righteous anger toward us. That's what scripture says. Now, a righteous anger is not your anger or my anger. It's not I'm going to get even with them. It is they are misusing the gift of life that I have given them. They are misusing the grace I have shed upon them to even give them existence and bring them into life and offer them Jesus Christ. And that's not right. You know, when you see someone being mistreated, when you see a young child, you go to the store and some parent is whipping that child around and, and mistreating them, you get angry. And the Bible would call that righteous anger. It's anger because something is wrong and it shouldn't be that way. And that's the anger of God here. This righteous anger that we messed up what he did and he intended. And the answer to this problem is sacrifice. As, as a demonstration of faith and trust, 
And so the, the Jews offered sacrifices night and morning as a way of, of tangibly giving up things of value back to God to demonstrate their sorrow and their desire for renewed trust. And the Bible was always clear, don't give them the second-rate animal. Give them the animal without blemish. Why? Because if I give you something that doesn't cost me anything, you're not sacrificing anything. You're demonstrating it doesn't really matter. It's only when I give you something of value to me that I am demonstrating genuine sorrow and why this matters. And so a sacrifice, something valuable, is offered to God out of sorrow for sin and seeking to get God then to restore the relationship because we can't. You've done something wrong to your spouse or to a friend, you cannot fix it until they decide it's fixable. But what's unique here is that the sacrifice to God is actually provided by God himself in Jesus Christ, a full, perfect, complete sacrifice of infinite value and worth. Our, our sin has broken the relationship with God, but out of his love for us and, and his faithfulness and justice, he provides the perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ that allows us to once again be at one atonement with him, the atoning sacrifice. So Jesus is both our advocate, Paracletos, and our propitiation or atoning sacrifice, Helasmos. He has both stood up for us and provided what was needed to bring about our pardon and forgiveness, restoring our relationship with God, not, not through our efforts, but wholly through Jesus' efforts. And John says this is done not just for us, for those who are in the church, for the, the guys who are in, in the know, but it is also done, he said, for the sins of the whole world. John 3.16 says God so loved the world that he gave us. John so, didn't say God so loved you guys only. And John is calling his readers and us to come back into the light and let it work in us. Yes, it will reveal failures. Yes, it will reveal sins. But John says we have an advocate with the Father. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Some of you this morning, you've got stuff in your life that is weighing on you. And what Jesus wants to say is, confess to me. You don't have to come to me personally. You don't have to go to any individual to offer to God and say, God, I have done this and this is devastating my life. Forgive me. And the Bible says he is, he, he's not just doing it out of his mercy, but out of his faithfulness and sense of justness. He will forgive, but more than that, cleanse, wipe away. At the same time, John wants his readers and us to know that because we are a unified whole, body, mind, spirit. Our spiritual life is not disconnected from our daily life. They are so intertwined so that all of our life, every moment of every day of our life is important to God who created each of us. So I want you to consider this just this morning when I pray. First, is there something you need to confess? Not so someone can say, I told you so. Not someone so you can think like God's shaking his finger at you. No, so that you can receive and begin to live 
his forgiveness that he, he wants you to have. And I guarantee you in a room this size with hundreds of you in here, there are hundreds of things right now that are weighing on some of you that you need to let go. And if you have not accepted Christ in your life, you don't even have that avenue. And so our prayer team will be down here and they would love to pray with you to welcome Christ into your life so that you can be forgiven, so that you don't have to live up to anybody else's expectations, so that you don't have to try to do it yourself, so that you don't have to pretend to be perfect or without sin or without mistakes because he loves you. And he never created you to be perfect. And in Jesus Christ, he's given you a means to get through any sin in your life so that you can live not in the dark, but in the light. That's his desire for every one of us. That's why John, John, John pleads, because he says he sees so much goodness that is available, so much good that can be done, so much release of freedom that we can experience if we're only willing to trust him. He is dying to give that to you. So if you need to talk to somebody, if you need to talk to them about forgiveness for yourself, they'll be down here. If you need to talk to them about receiving Christ, they'll be down here. I'll be out in the lobby with some friends, and we'd love to greet you, especially if you're new. We also have a study guide that's on our Find It page for a small group, or if you just want to do it personally, you want to work through some more on these scriptures. There's an opportunity for you to do that. Would you join me in prayer? Gracious God, thank you for your grace, which is incredible, that accepts us even as we fall far short of your glory. Because it's never been about the rules, it's always been about trust. And Father, we, we can so deceive ourselves. We can so dismiss sin and the, and the sinfulness of our lives. And all we're doing is hurting ourselves. But you are faithful and just to forgive, to offer life. And you have done that in Jesus, who is both our advocate and our atoning sacrifice, who has given everything that is needed to cleanse our lives and enable us through the power of the Spirit to increasingly live for you every day. Father, may that be our lives. I pray for that, Father. As John pleaded for his people, I plead for ours. Because I know you love them. You love us. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. He loves you. See you next time. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.